It's all been going rather well with the podcast. Lots of downloads. <laughs> no sign of our harshest critics. Uh, wait a minute, there's uh, something coming through from Apple Podcasts. Look, it's a review. Ah. Oh dear. You again. I'll sort you this time. Yorkshire till I die! Richard? Oh, he's uh, gone a bit two-dimensional. Let's just keep going. I doubt the listeners will notice. He's more cardboard than an Amazon packaging centre. His his face has gone missing too. Well, hang on. Look, here here are some features. Maybe we can make his face out of these. Hmm. Do you remember what he looked like? Not really, no. The screen was always quite dark. and The low bandwidth connection, you know, he's a very pixelated sort of chap. I, yeah, all those factors together and frankly, I might as well never have met the man. How about those eyes? I think that might be his, his nose. And this mouth? That definitely looks a bit northern. Oh, there you are, you see. Uh-huh. Richard? Hello, and welcome to Something Who. Bugger. So this episode's going to be subtitled Not But A Dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, so that's one from the new series, and add something borrowed, which was that sketch, to make Something Who. It's Something Who podcast episode 48, that's that's because I split the last one into two bits. I'm Richard, and we're back to discuss another couple of Doctor Who stories. First, we're going to talk about Second Doctor Tale, The Mind Robber, from season six. And after that, we'll chew over 11th Doctor story, Amy's Choice, from series five. And uh, with me to talk about dreams, fiction, and the surreal... We have science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. We've got graphic designer and, and now podcaster with uh, Dalek 63 to 828, Gav. Good evening. And Big Finish author and Missing Episodes podcaster Paul. Hello. The first thing that I wanted to say before we get into the business was wow, that, that Evil of the Daleks animation. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Objectively speaking, for the bits I didn't have anything to do with, I. Loved it too. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. And I can be fairly objective because I didn't have anything to do with texturing, animating, blocking, directing or any of that. So I'm fairly unbiased in saying I think it's bloody marvellous. Yeah, it is. I literally saw somebody on Twitter the other day singling out for praise the establishing shot of the house. Which I think <laughs> was um, one of yours. Well, I, certainly you... the model is, yes. Uh, I can't take yeah, any not, credit. It's for... not your house, I know. <laughs> no, my house is bigger and better. Um, but no, Colin Howard painstakingly painting all of the tiles and then Rob Ritchie painstakingly animating it. But uh, yeah, I did, okay. did, yeah, did, actually, did now I'm coming to think of it, it was the textures. And it, the yeah, it's everything <laughs> other than what I did, yeah. really, is no, what makes me... that shot. There's no denying it. <laughs> I said they have not seen it yet. I was just about to order it, and then a friend, friend of mine got in touch and said he'd managed to. Uh, land himself with two copies of the steel book and did I want mm. one so I'm, I said yes I'll have it off him but 
But he's but he's slower than Amazon. But that means yes, he's slower than Amazon. So I'm going to have to wait until some friend. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Tim, are you listening? I, I... Not that Tim, by the way. <laughs> Not that other Tim either. But yeah. <laughs> other other Tim. Well, I'm glad that's cleared that up. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. We probably ought to have a, our lukewarm take on the other big news of the of the decade, really, shouldn't we? <laughs> Go on then. Oh, well, the Galaxy Four animation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's your lukewarm take then, Charles? I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't really have one. I was just. Uh... Isn't it interesting that Doctor Who is finally going to be an in- produced by an independent production company rather than in-house? Because of course, an unobservant outside observer could be forgiven for thinking that it had been. I don't know. Since 2005, because it hasn't. It was even when it came back, it was unusual. Doctor Who in being made in-house. Uh, mm. Even back then, drama was largely farmed out, I and now so, it's even yeah. rarer. Mm. I heard a rumor there's only two programs left: si- Doctor Who and Silent Witness, which has been going for I think 25,000 years. <laughs> it's funny we've gone. We have actually gone in circles from Doctor Who being the last holdover back in back in the 80s. Being pretty much the last holdover that wasn't put out to tender hmm. under all the 80s reforms of the BBC, wasn't it? I think because wasn't yeah, J- J- JNT was the, the last the last in-house drama producer, pretty much. Yep. Indeed, I mean, as I said, <laughs> it wasn't. It was unusual in 2005. It's unusual now. It was unusual in 89. Hmm. They said when they take took it off the first time that it would come back as an independent production. And it didn't. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it has been a very, 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 very long time coming. But obviously are. that's not what you wanted to talk about. You wanted to talk about the the big name, mm. your man. Yes, Julie Garner. Um. <laughs> 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 no, um, yeah, well, welcome back, Russell. It's um, going to be interesting to see. A bit exciting to see what he does with it all over again. I don't think it'll be the same as before. <laughs> as if I have anything great to... Offer here, but um, but yeah, he's certainly coming. No, I, I could, you could drive yourself mad speculating about what he'll do, but I don't mm. think there's any. I'm I'm not going to. It's no, two bloody no. years away. That for one thing. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't have any sparkling observation other than I think you know as we've dipped back into the RTD era in this podcast, I've had a new appreciation for it. I think. Almost all of the stories that we've done from from his era, we've come away with. Well, I've certainly come away with with a greater appreciation second time than first. Mm. Does it imply that the BBC doesn't think there's anyone else? There are only three people in the world capable of executive show running Doctor Who. I've seen it pointed out that really, if Russell hasn't produced it before or been showrunner before, then he would be top of the list of people you might want to showrun. Doctor Who, if you were looking at creatives in this country in terms of his collections and and his track record and everything, so I don't I don't know. I think we've yeah we're lucky he seemed interested in coming back. For sure, yeah. I guess I don't know. I don't know if there's only if if they think there's only three people, but maybe if it's possible you can get RTD to do it, then why would you look elsewhere? Maybe maybe that's hmm. as much as anything. Just wondering why they would ask him before asking number four on the list or number five on the list. Hmm. Did they ask him? Did he ask them? But there was certainly there was a discussion that I think Chris Chibnall said that the decision was had been because it was now 
sort of fell to BBC Studios and things like that. It was a, a decision being made above his pay grade. Whether that's a slight fig leaf, in terms of that the previous showrunners, to some extent at least, of I don't know. I mean, clearly Russell pretty much offered, you know, suggested Moffat for the job, didn't he? I'm not quite sure how much what the what the configuration of things was with regard to Chibnall taking over from Moffat, but yeah, you imagine there'd have been some fairly high high level decisions. I mean, there's been all these rumours going around about them wanting to do a movie and all sorts of things for for many, many years, haven't there? And mm. possibly retooling Doctor Who from the ground up around around this kind of time frame. So it's interesting whether or not that really has any bearing on, on what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I guess that although, of course, you know, we could probably think of between us our, our, ourselves of several people who could you know who who would be in the frame to be a showrunner i mean mm. I, I suppose probably rtd and his team are the only ones who've managed to produce four series of it within four years mm. since the, the start so so i guess that they've got a track record of, of pushing out pushing it out in in sort of larger numbers in a shorter period of time than anyone else mm. well that's another potential factor with the bbc Obviously, will be. You would imagine will be keen to do that, to take advantage of that sort of thing. I guess you make more. You make more money in foreign sales mm, that way. Yeah, I had to tell. There's a, there's a few other. I guess a few other showrunners that are. Yeah, the people that are actually names beyond, the small, beyond the who circles, of people who've written for the show and so on. I, I guess you'd be looking at Sally Wainwright, Paul Abbott, people like that. The people that mm. kind of launch a show, still, but then they don't necessarily have have the interest and the passion. Would you want to? Would you want to take on something that's not entirely your own if you're working at that level? I'd have thought precisely that. Mm. If you if you can do anything that you want, why would you why would, why would you bring something back that you're not that mm. excited or interested? Yeah, in? unless you absolutely yeah. love it. We are, I think, very lucky that that we have a fairly you know prestigious pool of talent to pick you know we're we're lucky the pool is as wide as it is to be honest <laughs> that's um that although you know we may have reservations about mr chibnall but in general again i guess it's inherent to the to the show and the old school fandom and the the interest it created in doctor in sort of this behind the scenes and the production of television and stuff like that the fact that old school fandom generated three of the country's top showrunners who still have enough affection for the show that they actually want to run it and want to do things with it, I think we're um, we're in a very fortunate position from that point of view. Hmm. Okay. So I guess we'll 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 start talking then about the Mind Robber, which was written well, ostensibly by Peter Ling, although episode one by Derek Sherwin, and directed by David Maloney. I guess personally Mind Robber was another one of those ones that that came out on video, late eighties, early nineties, maybe. I mean, I, I I remember seeing it back then, and I don't know, I don't know what was wrong with me, maybe at that age, but I kind of <laughs> I, I I kind of turned my nose up at it as being a bit of a kind of kiddies story. Mm. But I just watched it again over the last weekend, and didn't really get the same vibe. But, you know, I, I I I thought 
it's an interesting concept and it's and it's um, and it's pretty well told so so yeah I've, I, I've come away from the most recent watching with with a with a more positive view on it than than I've had for many a year I don't know what your um, what your initial thoughts are I felt the same as I always have I, my feelings go up and down as I'm watching it I love some bits then other bits I'm not exactly rolling my eyes but um, I, I do start the story thinking this is a bit of a kids program as mm. um, as you apparently thought first time you saw it it does have a very the early episodes have a very linear structure and mm. and it's just it always it's quite basic a lot of hiding behind um rocks um being threatened by scary monsters and and the progression through the fairy tale landscape doesn't help that mm. it's not a draw i mean it's not the only story that feels like that in this era and i specifically mean season six but i guess the fact that it, the veneer is of children's storytelling sort of draws for me draws attention to the fact that it's been told in this often told in the style of a children's story yeah but there are some really on the other hand there's some really great science fiction ideas behind it and some quite sinister moments some (laughs) plenty of other moments that are potentially sinister and don't come off that way so it really is a a roller coaster yeah that's my my basic thoughts Mm mm-hmm I also often get frustrated as the episodes are going on that it's not doing enough with the the immense promise of this setup, mm. and then by the time we get to the last episode, it does start to to use um, to use it a bit more imaginatively. Mm. So I always come out feeling a bit more positive mm. than I went in, and then I have to go through the same roller coaster of emotions again the next time I watch it. <laughs> yes, yeah, it came out in 1990 apparently, so I guess that's when right. a lot of I don't know, but it probably would have been repeated on, on B Sky B or something similar, BSB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prior to that, maybe I'm pretty sure. I, I think I saw it on BSB, but you know it was only mm. less than a year before, so. Oh, it would have been that soon. Hmm. It wouldn't have made much difference. No. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those funny ones. Yeah, yeah. I can't say I'm the biggest fan of it. I'm probably a bit more negative than than either of you because it it doesn't it. It does seem quite facile the level of storytelling, but I take your point, Paul, that it's it's um yeah the the actual the conce- conceptually the you know the idea is great as I guess we you know we'll kind of see potentially when we come to the, when we come to Amy's choice that sort of thing. But generally, I kind of feel these these things. I tend to lump this with the the celestial toy maker. Um, <laughs> I guess for there's fairly obvious reasons it's it feels like whenever whenever doctor who does this sort of goes into this slightly alice in wonderland sort of realm it feels like you, know, you do also get this retreat into somewhat facile storytelling techniques at the same time and i really take your point paul that episode five you know you it holds off so long on on the reveal of the master of the land of fiction becoming yeah, actually becoming a character rather than a cackling presence watching things on his screen. And you think, well, if they'd actually just made it all a bit more apparent a bit earlier in proceedings, you know, then potentially there was a lot more they could do with the concept in the earlier episodes instead of it just being this fairly straightforward progression, as you say. I can never understand why this was one of those ones, I think, you know, perceived fan wisdom... Again, it was, it was this. Was, this is meant to be one of the greats, isn't it? At least was my understanding yeah, but, of it. Yeah, um, but what, what, 
did people always think that was it only in the um post i don't know in the 80s and onwards when it was one of the greats of the ones the handful that were left from trousers mm. i feel, I feel yeah. like it was more the latter not that not that there's fans who, who remembered it from the 60s that had always thought it was mm. maybe i'm wrong but you know when it was compared to the crotons and um I don't know. The Dominators, Dominators. yes. Dominators. <laughs> yes, indeed. That People was all we kind of to... had to choose from, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Whereas for my money, it's only really better than them in a, conceptually. It has more imaginative ideas, some of which it <laughs> does something with. Mm. I don't think the telling of the story really lifts it far above mm. any of those others. I guess there were some interest, interesting visuals that worked when, well, on, as, yes. still, as stills I... in Doctor Who Weekly. Like Medusa and things mm. like that, maybe freaked us out at the time. Mm. Gav, do you want to give us some initial thoughts on the mine robber? When did you first see it? <laughs> That's always a good one. It's one of those I don't, I don't remember seeing for the first time, but uh, we would have got the VHS, mm. and that would have been the first time I saw it. So it was relatively late, so there's no excuse really for not remembering it, but I think I rewatched it so frequently over the years that, that the, the first viewing just kind of. M- melts away. I enjoy it, but yeah, I don't quite think it's the the classic that it's held up to be. It's interesting and innovative and entertaining, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't think that the concept necessarily sustains four slash five episodes. But then that's very often the case with Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, as has often been noted elsewhere, due to the length of the episodes, it's probably about. <laughs> four episodes with the content across the five and of course there's an additional episode one that's been grafted in at the start that 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 wasn't in the original concept so it, it did feel to me as i was watching it that it moved along at a fairly cracking pace yeah maybe there's a bit there's one or two scenes that are stagey at times but but uh yeah i i felt it it, it moved along quite nicely i wasn't it's, wasn't getting bored by it at any it's stage. very watchable I, i'll give it that and david maloney certainly lifts it up a bit. Mm, yes, yeah. quite a bit. I think in terms of the plot progression, I, I'm, there's very little that actually happens. I mean, you're probably only about two episodes worth of plot. It's just the discovery of what's behind. Of what well, I suppose the, the discovery of where they are is mm. fiction. Why? Why is this happening? Who's behind it? And then the final battle, which is all very linear, and so it kind of makes the first three, well episodes two, three, and four feel a bit circular which they are. There's no real progression in terms of the level of threat or the level of fictionality they're facing. Mm. Just new characters are thrown in. With episode one, which I guess I was um, gave that the label of over the edge of destruction because it's. Mm. I mean, it feels like it's the it's the same idea. You know, we've we've got we've got an episode to fill. We've got the the normal characters. We've got the TARDIS set, and we've got a nice white space in in the studio that we can use. And but but of course, rather than go to the to the to the brink of disaster, the TARDIS blows up or or something. Is that grafted on to exactly the start of the story in episode two? Would that would would that have been just episode one? Does anyone know, or or was there a little bit of retooling to to kind of make that bit at the start fit in? Yes, it, it was essentially just a, a grafted on episode one. Right, the original episode one started with. The TARDIS, I think it was a magnetic space storm and it was out of control and that resulted in the TARDIS breaking up and right. the Doctor and his companions spiralling off into the distant yeah. darkness just to pick up pretty much where episode two starts. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing in Derek Sherwin putting together his hasty episode one is that because the wheel in space doesn't fully exist, we tend to overlook the fact that he has borrowed wheel in space episode one almost wholesale and cloned it onto the front of the mind dropper because it's a two-hander wheel in space. It starts with the TARDIS having problems and the fluid links overheating and mercury vapour. Yeah, good point. And there are tempting images on the TARDIS scanner Except in the wheel in space, they're, the doctor says they're temptations, but it's the TARDIS's way of telling them to, to leave because there's danger. Mm. But it shows like a tropical landscape and some nice things. Mm. Then in the wheel in space, the doctor reveals a, a new component of the TARDIS, which when activated changes the dimensions and ejects the doctor and companion into a new environment. After which, outside the TARDIS, they have to deal with a mysterious robot threat pondering about, and it's it's not hard to see the similarities. And mm. Sherwin oh, switched that TARDIS component, so instead of the inside of the ship, it changed the outside of the ship, mm. changed the dimensions of the, the interior into taking the TARDIS out of time and space. And it, I don't think, I don't know actually whether there was any actual explanation in the original script that was equivalent to the Doctor activating the control that he says it takes the TARDIS out of time and space into another dimension or whatever the Mm. language he uses is. Mm. He's definitely summoning up his inner David Whisker, isn't he? Because if you add in the element of the TARDIS being telepathic and and speaking in very mysterious ways... Mm. But I mean, the the odd thing is that here he's trying to solve a specific problem, whereas David Whittaker just started the wheel in space in that peculiar, low-key way, which had nothing to do with where it was going. Or is there a reason for that? Was it wheel in space expanded from five to six? I don't know. I, I my feeling is that there wasn't enough story to fill. The thing that struck me until you Gav pointed out the similarity to Wheel episode one is kind of lauded as being this triumphant, spo- you know, spooky, weird episode. Again, generally the sort of at least the the common fan perception was back in the day when when most of my formative you know my early views of things were and and I was watching it this time I was just thinking well hang on no this is just like this is basically how all the all the early Hartnell sci-fi stories start with a weird off kilter episode where no one really has any you know it's usually pretty much a just left to the TARDIS crew you know, maybe maybe a couple of other characters, and you, you have this weird "what the hell is going on" episode at the start of mm. an awful lot of those early. I wonder if that's the genealogy of it, as such that if Whittaker did the same thing because that was what he was used to handling back when he was script <laughs> editing, and then uh, Sherwin, Sherwin lifted the idea from there. It certainly means he knew he would be able to get away with it. That people wouldn't say, "What the hell's this? I don't pay my money to have, mm. <laughs> to just have the regular cast and no guests." Mm. I I still think the the um, spooky atmosphere works well enough for me in that first episode, mm. and it gives the story a lift. I go into the um, what should be equally fantastical, but often feels a bit prosaic world of the land of fiction, buoyed mm. by the genuinely mysterious opening. So yes, I think I, I think we're lucky. <laughs> in hindsight, we're lucky. It starts with that episode. It makes it makes the next couple a bit more tolerable. Now, here's a thought. I mean, talking about what uh, rework they might have had to do at the beginning of um, episode one stroke two, the start of the story proper, <laughs> they've also, as well as having to, you know, edit it to, to cut into the news opening, they've had to 
almost immediately make some changes to compensate for the loss of Fraser Hines. It must take four or five minutes over that course of that episode that's dealt with changing Jamie's face, isn't it? Hmm. It's not even a very long episode to start with, so I'm wondering what we lost. I'm assuming it wasn't anything particularly vital. Well, possibly that's where the preamble to the the, the bit that would have would have got us from the Dominators into into the land of fiction that Gab was telling us about the magnetic storm or whatever. Maybe that's where that went. But of course, it would already have been rewritten. They would have had a, a finished version mm. written for oh, the right length course, ready yeah, to go into yeah. the studio and then had to rewrite it during that last week mm. when they knew they d- didn't have Fraser. So, so the legend is he had chicken pox or something and he couldn't he couldn't be in that episode, although actually he is in it for a fairly I, substantial uh, chunk of yeah, the start. Don't, didn't they refilm? They they filmed that stuff the next week and edited, cut it back in. Mm. So it's right, not. Okay, if you're yeah. trying to start some conspiracy theory, that you no, were never no, really, no. Really <laughs> in the first place. Yes, you were. <laughs> well, that scene was already <laughs> it in. Did it. Used to, it did used to confuse me. Oh, go on what? then. The, oh, the, the cardboard cutout Jamie scene was already in the. That's outrageous. Script before. The but one. I, that... Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that there was necessarily any face swapping going on. That's outrageous right. that there was an an in for such a yeah. device already. What are the chances of that? The only episode that they ever made up to that point, which incorporated a, <laughs> a companion being turned to cardboard and back again. I mean, I, I would never um, have anything bad to say about a Doctor Who actor who comes from Yorkshire, so I, uh, I'm absolutely certain that, that whatever Fraser Hines says happened, happened. <laughs> so, but, yeah, but, but you're right, yeah. I mean, it, 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 how, it, what's the provenance on. of this, Gav? I mean, how much do we know about the original version? Or do you know what would have happened? It doesn't sound very thrilling if he just gets turned to cardboard and then comes back again. It was a test... I think the school children set him a series of riddles and Jamie was a cardboard cutout. It, he had to solve the riddles in order to bring Jamie back into three-dimensionalism. Right. Ah. Mm. Right. That, that is astonishing. Okay. Mm. Serendipity. Mm. It's funny, the, the, the parallels, because, again, it, it reminds me of the film Toymaker and the whole dis- yeah. Doctor's disappearing act and, and especially with John Wiles toying with the idea of... Um, Recasting the Doctor at that point and just yeah. bringing back a new new actor hmm. to replace Hartnell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's not, yeah, there are quite a few parallels between the two stories, aren't there? That's a that's a good one. It's funny how these things. I, I have to say, I, I quite enjoy watching Hamish Wilson in, in in this. I mean, I in in years gone by, I always used to kind of get a bit impatient waiting for him to turn back into Fraser Hines when watching it, but. But actually, I enjoyed his performance this time round. I, you know, I thought it's quite interesting to see a different take on James. It is. He's done a great job adopting his mannerisms, hasn't he? Mm. I think. Mm. Well, I think it's it's one of the best bits of the story, um, and uh, it's a lot of fun to have those two and three. And if it wasn't there, then what was left would have been even more underwhelming for me. So uh, mm. here's the chicken box. <laughs> <laughs> There's also quite interesting for me that we've got this character called the Master. And, you know, rather like his namesake in something like Castrovalva, you've got this kind of, you know, cackling figure behind the scenes watching and commentating and, and trying to control events. Yeah, it has, it has a, a lot of the same features for me that, that, that you've, you know, you've got this sort of strange, slightly creepy figure. One of the things I'm not keen on, uh, I think they introduced 
the master specifically and generally the idea that there's a sinister presence behind all this too early hmm. i could possibly cope with the idea of a sinister presence and some cackling laughter as early as episode one but even then i'm not sure because hmm. i think it's the idea of what on earth is going on here should be strong enough to sustain us for at least an episode without mm. there needing to be a, a villain. Mm. But the fact that we cut to him and we see him like a James Bond villain in his control room, looking at the screens, it gets, doesn't exactly give the game away, but it tells you that at the same at the exactly the time when you're you should be thinking, my God, they've come out of reality. They're in a world. They, what kind of strange dimension is this? Mm. My God, it's a world of fiction, and, and all, you should be concentrating on that. And just I'm wondering just how far removed from the standard Doctor Who story this is. You should be thinking, my God, is it like that amazing setup we were teased with in that classic, The Chase, of a world where <laughs> fic- fictional beings are real? Are we completely out of reality? But but no, you're brought back down to earth immediately by seeing that actually there's just a bloke with a computer. Mm. And I, I'm going to go on to say later, or possibly now. That's my least. That's my biggest downer on the story as a whole. The fact that behind what appears to be a completely different form of storytelling for Doctor Who, another dimension perhaps, hmm. is gradually brought back down to Earth again, and it's, it just becomes a mad computer wants to invade the Earth. Hmm. It just gets hmm. less and less fantastical and different as the story goes on. But specifically, <laughs> if you have to have that element to it, it shouldn't be there as early as uh, Episode One. Stroke two, for my money. Mm. So, Peter Ling. He made much the same mistake in Crossroads, of course. <laughs> <laughs> revealed that it was set in Birmingham was far too early. I think that was episode one. Um, they could have sa- staved that off for a couple of thousand episodes at least. Uh, it, it, it seems to me also in in, um, in episode two that, that, that Troughton's kind of warming to his task. It, 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 he seems quite animated to me i mean he particularly seems to enjoy working with bernard horsfall <laughs> but even with the kids the pesky kids you know, he, he, I, I guess he's done this an awful lot in his career to up to this point of, of, of working with a bunch of kids in a studio but you know he, he manages i think to rise above the potentially the the um uh, tripwise i suppose of of, uh, of acting with kids and and th- those scenes again seem seem you know pretty decent to me yep yeah, they're pretty good Children being childlike in in the wrong context is a always a slightly unsettling thing. Gulliver and the Gulliver stuff works great. Bernard Horsfall is a really mm. good performance. Yes, slightly. I did come out of this think. There's always been something that's bothered me about it logically, and it's the fact that he's the only character who is restricted to using like yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that when we got to Rapunzel. So that, yeah, yeah, which just makes makes me see behind the scenes and mm. all I can think of then is that this is Peter Ling's favourite book and that that's why he's chosen Gulliver mm. Mm. a lot of the others are the staples you know, the biggest figures from mythology and what have you and then Gulliver which is obviously mm. but of course mm. that's always going to happen other people have have written for the land of fiction and you always choose you're always going to be steered towards what you know and like mm. and understand and appreciate yeah because I quite like Rapunzel when she turns up I and mean, she doesn't get a lot to do but but her sort of postmodern take on a slightly yeah sarcastic there are, <laughs> there are lots of ideas and there are lots of different takes mm. on what you could do with fictional if fictional characters became real mm. i mean mm. you could take any so it, i'll give it credit for the fact that it doesn't keep it doesn't repeat itself if they'd all been self-aware not self-aware but characters that like the joke with Rapunzel is that she's, she's not that she's aware she's in a 
fairy tale, but she's reacting with modern mm, day yeah. real world attitudes. So if they'd all been doing that, that would have got old quickly. And if they'd all been just speaking words mm. sliced carefully out of a of the original source and so on and so on, if they'd all been mythological creatures, God help us. Mm. Mm. So it's a nice mixture. Yeah. I just think that it's a very slow move forward through episodes two, three, and four mm. because there's not much behind the curtain. So they're just trying to stave off the moment, that final battle for as long as possible, I think. I hadn't realised until this viewing that when Gulliver gives them away in episode two, it's not because he's being a snitch, it's because he doesn't realise that there's a danger. You know, he he can't see the the robots or something. I, I don't oh, know why yes. I've missed that the 27 mm. other times I'd seen it, but for some reason I had. He's starting to repeat the same dialogue for episode five. I noticed that having watched it yes. all in one mm. go this time, which I... Tut-tut, mm. Peter. Hmm. I find, I find the whole, when we get to the mythological stuff, I, I find the whole kind of I deny this reality thing a bit, you know, a bit trite. The fact that that's the, the get out is to recognise that these are fictional creatures. Yeah. The logic, the setup keeps, does shift a bit, doesn't it? Mm. That's what they use to get out away from the Medusa and the. And the Minotaur, yeah. Minotaur, is it? Minotaur. And again, it does make a recurrence. Actually, the best bit about that is. Um, is it episode four when the carcass shows up mm. and Zoe, who now knows this is the way to get out of this, mm. this situation, says, come on, doctor, deny, tell him he's just fictional. And he says, well, I don't, I can't because I've never seen him. I've never read mm. his comics. So I don't know that, which is nice mm. undercut. Oh, that's that what, yeah, true. Moment. Mm. Mm. But then they go a different direction in episode four and get the battling wordsmiths mm. fighting through avatars mm. by writing your own stories, which is, I guess quite fun but it's kind of a story that should be about wordplay it sets itself up as been all about words unfortunately they're battling a rather rather basic language you know and then suddenly the thingy me appears mm. it's just like a couple of kids in a infant school playground um which is unfortunate mm. be nice if there was a bit more joy in the language to, to go along with yeah the visuals mm. no my observations was when the unicorn comes along They'd mentioned it twice, so we weren't going to get away with it. I, I, I think they they, they made a, a wee bit too much of it. The, the Jamie dreamed about it, did he, or something? And then anyway, whatever yeah, happened, uh, right in the middle of his head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I quite liked was the fact that the white robots. Now this is a production puzzle to me, at least, because we had the white robots, and then we have the the link by means of sound effect to the clockwork robots that are then in the land of fiction and then they become the white robots are, are we am i correct in thinking that hmm. the white robots are yeah. and the and the clockwork robots are effectively sort of one and the same they've got different sound effects slightly oh, i they? think yeah mm. no they're, they're not they're not supposed to be the same they they come and go ah right. but i do think okay. there was a scene which i think was written to be the toy soldiers in Rapunzel's castle right. yeah. that was swapped out to be the white robots just to give it some continuity with the costumes that they had been hastily yeah. roped into episode one. Ah, right. I, spot that, I okay. spotted that for the very first time mm. on this watching because I'd always been brought up to believe that the white robots are only in the first episode mm. because that the old myth, well, not myth, sorry, but the old convention yarn mm. about how it came about. We, we had no sets, we just had 
a white backdrop, which of course they had to create from scratch. Mm. It's not like the studio was <laughs> white yeah. by default. Uh, yeah, but then mm. they found the robots in this prop cupboard and just used them for that episode. But then, then they showed when they showed up again later on. I was wondering, oh, were they always supposed to be robots? Mm. But um, okay, well that settles. I that. don't know. At the very end, that when at the very end when they're they're set to ex- exterminate the Doctor and end up shooting the computer itself, that does require something with with a gun, which wouldn't mm. be the clockwork soldiers, would it? So mm. maybe they were. Maybe there was something with that sort of ability in the original script. Don't know. I don't know either. So what do you all think? Does anyone agree with me that um, the more it starts to concentrate on the idea that it's a computer that's running this? Because I I was trying to work out why I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. Because mm. if it really was set in a fantasy world, well, I mean, when I watched The Chase and the idea is raised that the Terran nation genuinely thought a world, that a dimension where fictional creatures are real was a good idea. It brings me out in a cold sweat. I think, no, that's not Doctor Who. You can't do that. That's that's not science fiction. That's too... You've gone too far there. And yet when I get to the mind robber, I find myself thinking, well, that's what I want. I want them to go for this properly. I want this to be an actual land, uh, dimension of fiction. I don't want a big computer behind it all. Hmm. You spoiled it. So I seem to be a, I seem to be a bit of a confused child. <laughs> maybe maybe it's some, the middle ground that I want. Maybe I, Maybe I'd like a better explanation for where these fictional things come from. I've got a very vague memory of um, something in an early Paul Cornell book where a, an early version of what he called cyberspace had formed itself from human memories and thoughts. So like like a sort of spontaneous matrix that, that comes into beings hmm. through hmm. mental energy. You know, So maybe there's some sort of middle ground that, that would satisfy. For, for me, I, I, I think that scenario you, you've painted, Paul, the reason why I'm not particularly excited about... <laughs> about, about th- fiction in the middle of the chase is that they that you know that they are being chased through kind of real space and real time by the daleks so it seems like a bit of a of a jump there doesn't it to to, to suddenly oh, yeah. be, whereas in this one i i guess there's more of of a rational conceit to it being fiction i think well you get the build up to to the idea that they've gone somewhere yeah. weird yeah and some strange stuff is happening and then it's not too big a yeah, where it's just a the, normal artist okay. landing is. If it had happened in the chase for real, it would have trivialised their ability to enter such crazy realms with such ease mm. that it was just another random journey. Mm. It was actually um, Verity Lambert who kiboshed that, because it is um, in in Nation's original script for the chase. It is a it is a land of fiction. Yeah, good lord, yeah. really. And Verity Lambert's. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. Sorry. I, no, no, I, <laughs> I, I never Ver- knew that. I really <laughs> thought we were. No, I realised he was playing with yeah. it, but I didn't... Um... Maybe yeah, I only no. know that because I've spent too much time listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> Talking yeah, about the chase. And, and Ver- Verity said, no, I, I think this is too far for Doctor Who, mm. so it was Spooner who yeah. put the little tweak at the end to turn mm. it into a theme park, which is why when you're watching the episode, it doesn't quite add up. Mm. You, you, <laughs> you know, because there's not a great deal of rewriting mm. for the rest of that episode of The Chase. Yeah. Other than the reveal, so all the way through, it's retained all the dialogue where the Doctor's hypothesising and says, "Ah, oh, yes, we've landed in a world which is the human imagination. The Daleks can't get us here." That's that's exactly what Terry Nation had in mind. Yeah. Ah, good call, Verity. But <laughs> as I say, I, I I just I just find myself confused as to whether or not that would have, I would have liked to go a, a bit further in that direction here. But I, I guess I'm splitting hairs, really, because it's this is Doctor Who. It's not fantasy, so you will ultimately need some sort of, in inverted commas, 
Doctor Who sci- sci-fi mm. explanation for, for what's happening here. But then the comparison I have to make is to my favourite story of all time, the Celestial Toymaker. No, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, the comparison I'm making is to my, my, my ultimate version of the Celestial Toymaker, the version that's in my head, the version I imagined when I was looking at the pictures in Doctor Who Weekly 40 years ago, which is as sinister as the mind robber should be. And it keeps that sinisterness through to the end because there's never a big computer behind the Celestial Toymaker. This really is another dimension. There is no explanation mm. for how he's doing mm. these things. Mm. And again, what a hypocrite I am. He's some sort of godlike, uh, sorry, a creature of godlike powers. When I'm watching Star Trek and a godlike, a creature, <laughs> creature of godlike powers turns up, I think, oh no, what a very Star Trek thing to do. <laughs> and here I am saying I want more of yeah. it in Doctor Who. I appear to be completely in- inconsistent. And Funny yet- you should mention that because. Uh- on yet another rewatch of Star Trek The Next Generation and entrenched as I always am loving the the harder science fiction elements and the you know the sense that this is a real real vessel and on a real mission going to real places and the real problems and then Q turns up and yeah. it, and and you know all of the hard work that the scientific advisor people on Next Generation do to Make sure that the technical terms for the warp engines and the phases and the, <laughs> everything everything has an explanation and the the way the energy distributes and the, all the systems have a terminology and then and then there's Q and he is just basically God and he can manipulate time and matter and yeah it's it's a similar jarring juxtaposition. I guess the point is if they do some really good things with the Q stories that they couldn't do any other way then it's justified. Is that yeah. how you justify it to yourself? The no, I, I, the means. I just get very upset oh, by the fact that I can't, I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to process it. <laughs> you don't know what warp speed he's been moving at to get there. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, are, are these dreams? Are these real? Who knows? Hmm. They're all in people's minds. You can get around everything that way. It's I don't know if I've made myself clear, so I should stop here. But I, I do like the conceit it's not just a big computer, as much as I've tried to pretend it is. I do like the idea. It is. <laughs> no, hang on. It? It's, it's not no. just a big. It's not just a big computer. I like the the, the little old man. Yes. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that when they unplug him, <laughs> he's just a nice old man who doesn't know where he's been. I like mm. all that. Mm. And the, the specifics that he's some sort of writer who can generate millions of words, mm. like. Uh, I guess he's based on that chap who used to write for Frank, Rich- Frank Richards. I think he's at least part. That's him. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah, he so wore a similar nice skull idea. cap. Being very picky, I think if they'd just if he'd found himself in this other dimension, if this other dimension of fiction existed and it plucked people, if it was more like the Celestial Toymaker, mm. basically, <laughs> the Celestial Toymaker's world I find scary in theory. So here goes my credibility, because it just exists in this other dimension and people land there, mm. I guess, randomly, and they lose get and they're forced to play games and they're stuck there forever. And it's just, there's no explanation for it. It just exists mm. as a force of chaotic evil. Mm. And I can't, that's what I like about it. Whereas this, with the, you know, the computers and the control panels and the ticker tape, just take uh, the, the mundanity mm. uh, behind it. I think it'd be more more impactful if it didn't have any of that. And, yeah. oh, no, and they do just get carried, they do start to panic towards the end. I mean, when the computer says it's going to invade Earth, what's, what's its plan again? What's it going to do? Fictionalise everybody on the Earth so that the Earth will still be intact for it to use with yes. nobody on it. But for what? Mm. Quite. When to it has fill its own... with other stuff. Yeah. So it does really does 
fall apart there and um, could have done with another draft. I blame mm. Hazel Adair. They do butt up <laughs> against each other, these the, the, the science fiction, the harder science and the, the fantasy elements, like you say, when when the Doctor's discovering the rules of the world and that really jarring bit where he looks down through a, a window that's mounted in the floor of the castle and it allows him to see in, into the floor below, yes. mm-hmm. which has a like a teleprop typewriter and he works out that he can ru- use the rules of the game against the... It's a very nuts and bolts technical approach to yes. toppling a government if he arrives on an alien planet and finds how that alien planet system is operating and then he infiltrates it and destabilizes mm. it. And yet in a world where everything is intangible or ephemeral or can be conjured out of nowhere or your your words and your belief and your disbelief make things appear and disappear the idea that there's a a teleprompter that he can just sort of override and and i guess i guess yeah it's because you could have told the same story if they were just plugged into mind reading machines Mm. but then we that's not very visual so we need something a bit to see which is where the teleprompter comes from it's a shame it's a bit like looking into the grandstand studio and then somehow being able to fiddle with that changes the results <laughs> yes. of the actually changes the results of the football matches that are going on all around the country. But well, maybe that it, wouldn't be all that much fun. I think you're in the realms of fantasy there, Richard. <laughs> There's another um, another tiny similarity with Celestial Toymaker. The Doctor has a plan to to finish off his adversary, and he's going to type into the teleprompter and then with one bound the doctor's free yes. and the, you know, the, the machine blew up and the world collapsed in on itself and then he realises that if he types that he'll be trapped in that well it's more that he'll fictionalise himself won't he but it did remind me of at the very end of the Celestial Toymaker when the doctor's about to play the last move mm. of the Trilogic game mm. but he can't because he's still there I don't think you're in a magical realm that you can't take you, you can only win by taking down the entire realm but you're how do you do that while you're in it mm. I think has been has been lifted. Yeah, yeah. but he doesn't get out of it by doing a, an impersonation of Emrys Emrys James' voice. Mm. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's a shame they didn't make more of the Forest of Words thing at the start, really, because they mm. you get that idea that they when the trees are all letters and so on, and if they sort of run with that, some kind of I'm not quite sure. Ah, oh, well, imagine if ever imagine ever if, proliferating uh, the, the of Imagine the the keys. The whole story was in spell out in that was wood. And they, didn't, they couldn't see it from the from a low level. They couldn't. <laughs> they could only see it when they got up to the top of the tower. Yes, at the exactly. End, yeah. Rapunzel's tower. Mm. But that would have been good. Yeah. Mm. Well done. You should be a script editor. <laughs> Ever since I was little, it's really bugged me that the depth of the good. letters in the model shot is, is all uh, wrong. Are, for the... are, are, yeah. I really I mean, wanted to mention that, that, but I. It seems like yeah. a nitpick, but it's just one of those small, simple, jarring. Things mm. that I was fantasizing about how easy it would have been because yeah. they just need more letters and they pile them up on top of each other and then suddenly they're the right height. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to reach into the screen and re- and do it properly. <laughs> uh, did I you? Bet that was did you try? Michael John Harris or mm. somebody like him that, that did that. Yeah, yeah, probably was him. <laughs> it's normally Michael. It was John one Harris. of the um, Bill King at his trading post. Some of the work, the early stuff, it was jo- one of John Friedlander's early jobs. I think oh, he right. did uh, yeah, the producer. The he did, um, yeah. and I th- did he do the Minotaur as well? Might have done. Definitely, definitely, Medusa, but mm. uh, uncredited. And I think he doesn't remember. Mm. He doesn't remember a lot of the very early stuff. Did the mm. uh, 
the sculpture in the ark and things like that. Hmm. Did he? Hmm. I just wanted to mention the flat TARDIS when the Doctor thinks he's got into TARDIS and it's not real. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. Which is a, a nice conceit. I always love it when the Doctor gets into a TARDIS and it's not a real one. <laughs> I've written it off many times but, myself. But this is one of my favourites when it... Um, that's that's another uh, parallel with this, with Celestial Toy uh, oh, Maker, yeah, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course it is. Oh, maybe, well, maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe Peter Ling. Yeah. See, if this had that. been rewritten three times by different people, maybe it would have approached the classic status of the, uh, <laughs> CT. Yeah. I kind of wish that someone had taken Patrick Troughton aside at some point and said to him, you may think you're a man of a thousand voices, but actually you've only got two. You've you've got your own, and you've got then you've got that sort of slightly foreign one. <laughs> <laughs> well, be fair, he had to he had to match whatever Christopher Robbie had come up with. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and poor old Christopher Robbie, you know, t- two roles in Doctor Who, and both of them equally laughable. Bloody hell! I was <laughs> laughing this time watching that scene where first he can barely get his next line out because he's too out of breath because they've made him do the fight and they won't <laughs> not only have they not done it on film which is what everyone always says why didn't they because there's plenty of pre-filmed moments in this story yeah. and they, if yeah. they'd done one more we wouldn't have yeah. had that ridiculous fight but um i mean do they forget how many roles they're supposed to do it just seems to go on forever by the time they finish he can't speak and then wendy pavry can't speak she gets the line wrong because she's so confused doesn't know which way she's facing <laughs> an interesting thing that having just come off the back of Evil of the Daleks which has an in-studio very lengthy sword fight yes done as live and again one wonders how good is that likely to be I mean it, <laughs> it it's it's truncated in the animation don't yeah. tell anyone <laughs> that goes on for some length of time and how how interesting can that really be and how well choreographed and uh, do we have another carcass style fight scene leaving everyone confused and breathless and facing the wrong way (laughs) (laughs) oh we can but hope (laughs) I've had a reference to the carcass in a big finish story which is uh, may well Mm. emerge at some point yeah look out for that I probably shouldn't have admitted it because they probably have to pay Peter Ling's estate now which um as you know, I didn't. I didn't do that. No, no, it's not true. No. <laughs> I, I, I must have. I must have missed him when I was reading comics in the year two thousand. <laughs> I was amused that, again this time. The, the fact that it's the year two thousand didn't annoy me like it normally does. Well, that's not far enough in the future, you idiots. And Zoe isn't from the year two thousand. What if you've forgotten everything? What I actually thought this time was, oh, that makes a lot of sense because of course we've had. He looks like a, a low rent <laughs> Marvel superhero, and that's all we've had for the last twenty years. <laughs> so it explains everything. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I've got an amazing fact about uh, Christopher Robbie and his physique. Go on then. You know how mu- he, he's really muscly in that mind robber, <laughs> but actually none of that's none of that's real. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just a prosthetic like, like suit. Like they give all the Marvel superheroes. Like yeah, fake it's muscles. like the, the old version. I didn't know they could the do that back dig- then. Digital abs. Right. Yeah. Wow. And if you was... look really, really carefully, I mean, you have to look really carefully. You can see. A slight join on his neck, where his where the the skin of his body goes from completely white to uh, flesh coloured on his face. But apart from that, it's just brilliant. I can never tell whether that's meant to be. I don't know what what is that meant to be. <laughs> is that is that <laughs> seriously? Yeah. Because like I think his cape is attached to 
So presumably it's supposed to be an incredibly tight top with his muscles underneath, or potentially. I don't know. He's just got a cape sellotape to his shoulders <laughs> with no nipples. I don't know. I assumed it was clothes. Odd. Anything's possible in the yeah, maybe, maybe my mind didn't want yeah. to sort of contemplate the alternative. No. It's wow. uh, it's just as well those white robots can't move very quick. Because it does take them an absolute age in episode 5 to get around to, to firing the weapons. I mean, you know, in the same way that that robots uh, in series 11 can't just can't hit anything. Mm. This this time they, do, they can't actually they can't actually get to the trigger. <laughs> That's a switch to being on film. That's not no, well, uh, there is that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And the end, the end of it is quite brains of Morphaton, I think. Yeah, it's just 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 smash everything up. Mm. That again is, oh, is yeah, part of the of problem of a. Whenever it's a psychic battle, and we've we've talked about this before, there's no good way to end a psychic battle on TV. No. So smashing up a computer desk is yeah. as good as anything, if it was really. A, if it was a proper psychic battle, the Doctor would win easily because it's just a bewildered old man. So. I guess that's why it has to be told through storytelling, but then they'd think the old man would have the advantage. So it's a lovely idea. I'd like to sit down properly one day. But then the, the very end, with the, let's just punch all the buttons at once and it'll overload the computer. <laughs> and then the next story, we get overloaded computer by mm. giving it a nonsense equation, don't we? I mean, Derek's showing clearly... Yeah. Well, there's a step up, I suppose, from one, from yeah. one story to the next, but it's... Uh... Well, that's that's definitely very much original series Star Trek, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Which is presumably happening at about the same time. Is it, Gav? Do they confuse computers with nonsense in Star Trek? Uh, yeah, they... they yeah. Good. But, gener- but generally in the third series and thinking about it, that, that probably is too late for them to have seen it to do this. So, uh, But anyway, yeah. I don't anyway. think... Did, did we, we got it later anyway, didn't mm. we get it till the 70s? Yeah, yeah. That wasn't a sentence. Didn't we get it until... No, I've just said the same thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, you're, I think if I'm parsing right. your sentence correctly, Gav, I think you're correct that, they, <laughs> that it wasn't over here until... I was trying to overload your brain post <laughs> with a confusing <laughs> well, sentence. You know, I don't know. It obviously still works on... It worked on Facebook the other day, didn't it? So... <laughs> if only it's stuck. Someone, someone asked Mark Zuckerberg what can go down, up a chimney down and not, and not down a chimney up. <laughs> Does not compute. Weird hair flew he's off. A particularly, he's a particularly badly designed avatar, isn't he? <laughs> um, so, is there anything else we want to say about the mind robber? A good Twitter handle. <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not been taken, uh, don't get me started. On my website, I, I, I at one point started uh, uh, watching Doctor Who in order and writing it up as a little blog, and it was just one of many sections. And uh, and then someone else started their own blog, watching Doctor Who in order, and called it the Mind Robber, and had almost exactly the same page layout. Deeply frustrating. Yeah. Good Lord. What an unpleasant memory to force you to dredge up. So, so, <laughs> I'm full of them. So they they were literally a literally a mind robber. They were they were robbing they were robbing from the mind robber. They should have been the mind robber. Robber should have been a race with mind robbers. 
Mm. Day to day. One thing, it's not an original observation, but with regard to the carcass and cross-pollination from American TV and so on, apparently that the carcass was written as a bit of a send-up of Batman because Batman was was being aired on ITV by this time, the Adam West version. Yeah, that makes that makes more mm. sense. Yes. Christopher Robbie confuses everything because he can't resist a funny voice, mm. apparently, <laughs> when he's in Doctor Who. When he was doing the TV presentation for Southern Television, he wasn't like that. Mm. Mm. I was watching some of that on YouTube the other day. That's how I passed my time. Gosh. Did he do some low-rent blockbusters replacement quiz show? Or am I confusing him with Sue, with his daughter Sue? I couldn't. I can neither confirm nor deny that fact. Oh, fair enough. Mm. Just had a feeling there was something that went on when Blockbusters was off air. Was was Blockbusters ever off the air? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Um, Sorry, that's going nowhere, isn't it? Cut that bit. No, it's a very strong point on which to end our, <laughs> the first half of our discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. We could maybe do a, a sort of br- a breakette there and then come back for the um, second half. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Trio. Yes, Emily. What's that huge pile of stuff just off to your right shoulder in your office? Well, that's just my Doctor Who DVDs. Mm, Are you sure it's safe? That's a lot of DVDs that you've got there and it looks like it might fall over at any moment. Hmm. Well, I can't move them because they're holding up my work notebooks and my technology manuals. Oh, Mm, okay. Well, that's not the sort of work-life balance I was expecting from you. everyone we're back for episode two of if it's hurting it's not working yes yeah, so it's our podcast all about work why we work how we work and what makes a great job in this episode we're going to be talking about work-life balance yeah because historically pre-pandemic it was very clear-cut wasn't it you'd go into the office very routine nine to five every day or you'd go off to the the building site or whatever your trade. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's exactly the kind of working pattern that I had when I started work. Predetermined tea breaks, lunch times, and, you know, you left your work in the office, you, would, you wouldn't think to bring it home. Over time, the lines have been blurred between work-life balance. We're living in an always connected world. I tend to see it as a positive. It gives me the opportunity for control, I guess, so long as I'm disciplined. Yeah, and that's the the thing, isn't it? It's about what works for you as an individual. I'm a parent, you're a parent, Emily. I mean, how do you manage to, to, to get a balance in your life around parenting and around work? So for me, it's always been a tricky one because I'm a single parent. And the other thing I think that impacts your work-life balance as well is your commute. <laughs> It's interesting that, um, it probably isn't at all interesting, 
No, come on. <laughs> it might be. 